If you got your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, we, <coughs> we have uh, been away from Luke for the summer, and so we come back to it uh, this morning. And we got to pick up in the middle of a account that we started back in June, and hopefully uh, it'll make sense to us as we study it together. <clears throat> one of the uh, one of the things I miss, uh, as far as being in a smaller church, is obviously we don't have as many missionaries as as we've had in past churches and. I always enjoyed when those missionaries would come and usually on a Sunday night give a report. And back in the first, back at First Baptist Romeo when I was a kid, it was slides. You know, and you'd come in and the curtains would be pulled and they'd have that big stand right in the middle, not like this temporary thing. They'd wire it up and they'd have the slide and would, you'd hear the fan running and you just knew it was going to be great because you're going to see these pictures. And, and now we've kind of progressed into this sort of a presentation. But to hear those reports, and you usually would see your missionary every four years, you'd, you'd hear those reports and you'd always feel drawn to those things. When missionaries return, like for us, when Joel and Sarah come back, it will be so fun to, to see their family and to hear what God has been doing. Like, we can follow them online, but to see them in person and ask questions will be a great joy. That's kind of what's happening in Luke 10. Jesus has sent out the 72 with the purpose of sharing that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's really an evangelistic message. They're going out and they're sharing that God wants to be the king and ruler and have a relationship with them. In verse 2 of chapter 10, Jesus points out that there's plenty of people to share that message with, but the problem is, is that there aren't plenty of people to share the message. Remember verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We need more workers because we have enough, plenty of people to share it with, but not enough people doing that work. And so those 72 have been sent out in verses 1 to 12. We talked about that. <clears throat> and now they're coming back with a report of how that went in verses uh, 13 to 24, which I hope to cover all of that this morning. Let's go ahead and read that section. Usually we read the passage for our scripture reading, but we read a different passage today. Follow with me, if you would, in verse number 13. This is after Jesus had kind of commissioned them to go out. And now he pronounces a bit of a woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. <clears throat> the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding 
and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I'm going to be struggling today, I can tell. Here's how we're going to uh, plot the course for our study. Three words that are going to direct us as we walk through the passage. Woo, woe, and wow. Okay? Woo, woe, and wow. That's, I thought that was clever. Come on, you've got to give me some of that. Woo, woe, wow. We have the wooing, which is the relating of the gospel. We have woe, which is the rejection of the gospel. And then we have wow, the rejoicing in the gospel. Okay? Woo is the relating of the gospel or the sharing of it with other people. That's what the disciples go out and do. They try to woo people to, the, to Christ. Then woe on those who reject the gospel, right? There's that big section. If you reject it, there will be pronounced woe and condemnation upon you. And then wow, there are some rejoicing in the gospel. Let's start with the first, woo. <clears throat> woo is an old word, right? It's an old, like, courting word used back in the 30s, right? You're going to woo some girl. What, what did they call it? Pitching woo? I mean, a, that's a real old phrase, probably. But it means to court or to invite. <clears throat> and that is really the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is an invitation. That's why I read Matthew 22, 1 to 14. The disciples go out. It's, you know, that's the parable where they, the, the servants go out and they invite people to the wedding feast. This is a gospel invitation that the 72 are making. Whenever the gospel is shared, it is a wooing. It is an invitation to come to Christ. In fact, a lot of times, church services, 50s, 60s, 70s, even some today, bow your heads and close your eyes because we're going to have an invitation. This is going to be a time of invitation. And if you would like to receive Christ then please, as the music is playing, you come. Just as I am, I come, Billy Graham, for years and years, right? I'm going to give the invitation. Nothing wrong with that. You don't have to have an invitation, though, in a service to come to Christ. You can come to Christ as soon as you feel the conviction, right? Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible is literally... Uh, filled with these kind of invitations. It's impossible to cover all of them. And primarily the word of invitation that is used is come. Come. You can almost hear in Billy Graham's voice, wouldn't you come? Right? You can almost hear that. Okay, we'll wait a minute, and wouldn't you come? That's a terrible impersonation, but you can understand that's the invitation. But the Bible has done that years and years and years before the 1900 century 1900 evangelists did that. Isaiah 1:18, "Come and let us reason together. Even though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow." Isaiah 55, "Come, all you who thirst, come to the waters. Come, buy and eat. Come without price." In the New Testament, Matthew 12:28, "Come," Jesus says, "to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." John 7. 37, Jesus says again, if anyone thirsts, 
let him come to me and drink. Besides these passages, Isaiah 45, 22, John 6, 37, Revelation 22, 17. The Bible is full of these invitations. Luke, our study, the series is called The Greatest Story Ever Told because of that old movie that came out years and years ago that told the story of the Christ. But it is the greatest story ever told because it's a story of a righteous and holy God inviting sinners to be reconciled to Him. In other words, God is wooing and courting and inviting rebellious men and women to be in a relationship with Him. That's really the, and, and then Jesus comes to make that way possible. So the whole, the whole gospel is a gospel of invitation. And when we say something is inviting, we could mean a couple of things. We could mean it as an adjective, and we could mean it as a verb. When we say it as an adjective, when we talk about something looking inviting, right? we, we say, oh, that, that's a, an attractive or pleasant or nice thing. We might, you might go home today and... Uh, then a meal has been prepared, <clears throat> or, you, or you're invited over to someone's home, and, and the meal looks inviting. Or you see uh, vacation pictures of someone who recently went to the beach, and oh, that's such an inviting spot. When you drive over the Mackinac Bridge, and you look off in the distance, and you see Mackinac Island, and it's, it's sun-kissed, and the water is golden blue, and you say, wow, that's, that's really inviting over there. I am drawn to that. But it also is used as a verb when we say, I am inviting everyone out for ice cream after service. It, it, then I'm saying, I, I am being a welcoming uh, person by saying, there is something special that I would like you to come to. And I'm making a, a, a move to court and invite you to that place. So when we say God is an inviting God, which one of the two of those definitions do we mean? Do we mean God is an inviting God in an adjective sense? Or do we mean that God is an inviting God in the sense that he is doing the inviting as a verb? It's a trick question. He's both. God is an attractive, pleasant, lovely thing that we should be drawn to. The only reason we're not is because of our depraved minds and hearts. And God is also a very welcoming, inviting God. I just read five or six scriptures and referenced four more that talks about God being an inviting and welcoming, courting God. Who invites their mortal enemies to their birthday party? Nobody. Yet God has invited us who are hostile to Him in mind and in heart and in action to be invited into a relationship with Him. To be invited to be reconciled to, with Him. To invite, be invited to repent towards Him. To be invited to rest in Him. To be invited to rejoice in Him. This invitation is a wonderful thing that God gives, but He makes it through other people. Right? Paul is, is, is an exception in Acts when Christ actually appears to him and invites him to be part of his family. That was an exception. The rule is that men and women take the gospel and do the inviting. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 <clears throat> talks about us making the appeal. 
We are Christ's ambassadors. In his place, we are urgently appealing to you to be reconciled to God. Look at it this way. Every time the gospel is shared, whether it's here in Luke 10 and the 72 are going out, or whether we share the gospel, even as simply as passing a card or a track, or if we get to the whole gospel message, whenever we give the gospel, think of it this way, it is an invitation. A lot of times we, we, sometimes the gospel can be presented as a condemnation, which it is, but it is an invitation, and we must be making an urgent and compassionate appeal to others that they might be reconciled to God, just like at some point someone did for you. Who invited you? I'm not asking out loud, but in your mind, who was the inviter? Who did God use to bring you to himself? That person is probably a cherished person for you because they did the urgent appeal, asked you to be reconciled to God. God is still inviting people. He is still wooing people by His Spirit and with the words of others to be invited into relationship with Him. We cannot be in a relationship with Him unless we repent of our sins and by faith trust Jesus as the only source of our salvation. Becoming a Christian isn't about turning over a new leaf or uh, kind of making some changes in your life like uh, resolutions. It is an I like to summarize it in, in, in a couple of words. It, it is a total abandonment of yourself. It, it, you have to abandon, self-abandon your own works, your own merits. You have to acknowledge your complete, uh, your complete want and lack before the Lord. Say, I have wronged you and I have sinned against you. I have violated your law and I deserve to be separated from you forever. You have to totally abandon yourself and you have to give yourself totally to God. You have to, you have to absolutely trust Him completely and give up on your own works and ways and respond in faith to the gospel. That is the invitation. And if I could stop right now and I could say, please Come to Christ if you never have. And I'm appealing urgently to you because time is short and the opportunity may never present itself again for you to trust Christ. And as we move on, you're going to see the ramifications of this. So if you have never trusted Christ or if you, you are confused about it, wouldn't you ask questions? Britta's taken calculus, pre-calculus uh, this year. You know, that's, that's tough. If I sat in there, I, I know Dave would excel and others of you would excel because of your math backgrounds and stuff, but let's say you're sitting in the class and uh, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. <clears throat> and I have this happen in my Bible class, not to the, maybe the extent of a calculus class. What does, what does any normal human being do when they're sitting in the class for a couple weeks and they're just like, I'm just confused. What does a normal human being do? What does a normal teenager do in that case? Yeah, let me go to the person who knows, in this case the teacher, say, hey, I just, I just don't get this. I F, 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 please explain it to me. And they go to that teacher for what reason? I mean, ultimately, what's the ultimate reason they're asking the questions? Well, yeah, they don't want that report card to come back with F because that's going to mean uh, a lot of bad things. 
That, that's the ultimate consequence, right? To learn, I want the truth. But the ultimate consequence, I don't want that ultimate consequence. Yet here we have, perhaps in our own midst, people who are confused about the gospel. Maybe you've heard bits and pieces of it and you kind of under, but you're not sure. What would a normal thinking person do? They would say, I want to be dead sure about this. So when the test finally comes and I die and face the judgment, the consequence, which is not a mere F, but complete and total separation from God in hell, I want, to be, I want to be completely sure about that. Do you see how, I mean, to be kind, do you see how foolish and really stupid it would be if you are unsure? I'm not calling you stupid, but I'm saying it would be ignorant of you if you did not understand what I just explained as the gospel that you are a sinner destined for separation from God forever. You already are separated. And apart from Christ, you'll be lost in hell forever. If you're not sure, please ask the questions. Come to the, come to the Scripture. Come to someone who understands and can explain it to you. That is the invitation. Now, there are always two. Moving on now. There are always two responses to that gospel invitation. It's either receive or reject. There is no third. Well, I'll wait. That's rejection. You either receive it or you reject it. Now, what does our passage teach about those who reject? Okay, so we're moving to the woe section now. That was woo, the relating of the gospel. Now, woe, the rejection of the gospel. Woe there in verse number 12. Christ begins stating this on certain cities. Woe is an interjection of grief and indignation. It actually is a word that is used of for someone who is, sees a disaster and has pity on that person. And it's kind of funny because it almost translates over to English, really. We were in Flint uh, visiting the hospital a few months back, and first accident I've ever actually witnessed it happen. Right? Maybe some of you have seen, actually seen the accident happen. Boom! So we're driving, and this car just blows a stop sign and just T-bones this other car. You know what I said? Whoa! I said, whoa! I saw a disaster, and, and, and it's not perfect. I'm just kind of, this is the idea, though. What Christ is saying is, Chorazin, Bethsaida, you are, you are headed for disaster, and I pity what is going to happen to you. That's really, I, I think that's accurate as far as the translation of that word. Those who will not receive... By repenting of their sins, they will not receive the gospel. Jesus announces woe on those people. If you think back, we won't look there, but if you think back to what I read in Matthew 22 about the invitation to the people who come to the wedding feast, here's what it says about them. Verse 3 of that passage, Matthew 22, says they wouldn't come. They wouldn't come. Verse 5 says they paid no attention to the invitation. They paid no attention to it. They showed no concern. They were careless about it. They neglected it. Like, like when you get the mail every evening, there's rarely probably a letter of any value or worth nowadays, right? People don't communicate that way anymore. Um, but let's say you're waiting for a check or you, got some, or you get a coupon, but then you see three junk mail. Where do they go? <laughs> right? That's kind of the idea. The, the invitation is coming and it's just been given and it's just like careless, neglect, paid no attention. But not only that, they responded with anger in verse 6 and treated those servants who came and invited shamefully. It's a picture of the prophets and ultimately they killed them. They were so angry. According to that passage, few are chosen, which means many will reject the invitation. 
Many will reject the invitation. You see it in verse number 16 of our passage. The one who rejects you rejects me. Many will reject the invitation. Reject means to declare invalid, to make void, to deny or to despise. The invitation has just gone out, like here in our midst, 40 people or whatever. The invitation has just gone out, and some, some of you have already received that invitation, and you trust Christ, and you know him, and you're assured of that. You can sing blessed assurance with full confidence. Others, not so. You're rejecting that invitation. You're saying that's an invalid I don't, I'm not concerned with that. So what happens then is anybody who rejects the gospel does not reject it in a vacuum, right? There are ramifications and consequences for everyone who rejects the gospel. Uh, there are repercussions. It may seem that people can reject the gospel with impunity now, but according to verse 14 of our passage, judgment is coming. Now, there is no, be, be very, very careful <clears throat> as a believer who has perhaps shared the gospel with a lot of different people, maybe you have, and a lot of different people probably have rejected, and probably more people have rejected than have received the gospel that you shared. Isn't that right? Okay, some people. Isn't that right? More people reject. And it's very easy sometimes, I hope this doesn't happen, but it can be easy to sometimes to get to the place where we say, um, almost where we take delight in their pending doom. That's not the case. So as I talk about this even now, there's no joy about this, but there is truth in this. That when judgment comes, those who have rejected the gospel will face ultimate doom. He mentions five cities in the passage. Can you see it? Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, Sidon, and Capernaum. Chorazin and Bethsaida were two cities that were very close to Capernaum, miles away. They were upbraided for their beliefs. That's all we know about these cities. Tyre and Sidon were ancient cities who were condemned because of their pride, immorality, and idolatry. Capernaum, though, was the headquarters for Jesus' ministry. It's where many great miracles happened, according to where did, where did I write this down? Luke 4, 31 and 32, the people were astonished at Jesus' teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And according to Luke 9, 43, they also witnessed amazing miracles that Jesus did in that city. What Jesus is saying, well, actually, there's one other city mentioned in the passage. If you look at verse 12, Jesus says, it will be more bearable on that day for what city? Sodom. Than for that town. What Jesus is saying, and he says Tyre and Sidon would have repented if they would have seen these things, it'd be more bearable for Sodom than for, for cities and towns to hear the gospel. Let me just step away and try to make this clear. Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, these are cities that saw and heard great things. They, they witnessed the works of Jesus and they heard the words of Jesus and they were amazed and astonished at both. And you know what they still did? Rejected. They still rejected People sometimes have said to me in the past when shared the gospel, well, I just, I just need to see Jesus more. Like, in different ways, I say, I just wish Jesus would do this, then I would trust him. Then, that's, all, that's all nonsense. These people saw demons cast out. They saw dead raised to life. They heard the words of Christ as no other scribe has ever taught, with authority. And Jesus says, these wicked cities, Tyre and Sidon, if they had heard the gospel, they would have repented. 
They would have shown grief and self-humiliation. They would have worn sackcloth and sat in ashes. But you will not repent. Here's the key truth. Please understand this. This is very important. Greater revelation leads to greater condemnation. Greater revelation leads to greater condemnation. The more information that one has about Christ, the greater condemnation they will face. That's something, isn't it? He says it will be more bearable, verse 10. He says uh, in verse 14, it will be more bearable. Now, everyone who suffers in separation in hell forever, it will be unbearable. But apparently for some, it will be more unbearable. And the reason it will be more unbearable is because they had greater revelation. I was studying this Friday. We took Max to the airport, and uh, the kids and Leah went to Sears because everything's for sale. They're closing all the stores, and, and uh, I went to Barnes & Noble. Even in Barnes & Noble, a secular store, there's bookshelves, three of them, on Christianity. Now, some of it's garbage, but there are, there are books that explain the gospel in that, in that secular store. We are, as Americans, inundated with gospel information. Just overwhelmed, saturated by it. Some people sit in church week after week and faithful pastors explain the gospel and share what Christ has done and because of either their self-deception, their lack of interest, their apathy, or whatever, they, they never... Re- what kind of punishment do you think awaits those individuals who had this great information... Look what he compares it to. The rabbis called this city the most godless that ever was. Sodom I'm talking about. I mean, when, when Sodom is mentioned, you know, we even have a word for that in our culture today. Notorious for its wickedness. Yet for, that the people of Sodom will, will, have, will have it easier to bear in the judgment than this, this religious Capernaum who had a synagogue and priests and rabbis and, and uh, even had the presence of Christ. It's astonishing. And there's a very important clue for us that Jesus gives about the city of Capernaum when he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Question mark. You know what he's saying to the people of this city? That, that they think that they are okay. That because they are close to religion and familiar with teaching from Old Testament scriptures, that they're going to be okay. They think, we're going to be exalted unto heaven. And Jesus says, uh, 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 uh. You instead will be brought down to Hades. Luke 10, verse 15. The godlessness of Capernaum is seen in their unwillingness to repent. The only proper response to the gospel is repentance. Nineveh, Jonah 3, 6. Peter, Luke 5, 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. The only proper response is repentance. These, these cities that had the kingdom of heaven presented to them will face greater doom in hell. What we understand from this passage is that there are degrees in hell, degrees of punishment. And apparently, you got tired and siding, wicked cities, idolatry, immorality, pride, rebellion, conquering the nations that God loved. And then, and then you have 
Sodom, which is, of course, known for its homosexual activity and all the rest, and then you have Capernaum, even below that. And now where do you think American, quote-unquote, Christians who had all this information, who could go to Barnes and Noble and buy a book about the gospel, who have churches virtually on every corner to share the gospel and sat in those churches and said, gospel not for me. Or weren't, weren't bold enough to go like the calculus person and say, I don't understand this. What kind of judgment awaits you? And you just have to say like Jesus says, whoa. Whoa. I even see people in our auditorium today not paying very careful attention and, it, and that scares me for, for you. It really does. It burdens me so much to wonder if you take this seriously enough or this is just another, come on, Andy, we want to get to the restaurant. Or it just, will you please give some consideration to this important, crucial, and vital teaching? Third, this is for us who are believers. Wow. The rejoicing that comes from the gospel. And this is actually where I want to spend the most time, and it's already 1130 so we'll see what we can do here. This third section is all about the joy that comes when we do receive the gospel. And it's this passage that blows you away that anybody would ever not receive the gospel, but it's because, of course, of their depravity and their, and their complete sinfulness, and we do depend on the sovereignty of God to draw us. In this passage, now I'm talking verse 17 to 24, verse 17 to 24, what we have are, is a progression of joy. We have a progression of joy. We go from great joy to greater joy to the greatest joy. Okay? Great joy, greater joy, greatest joy. So we're going to have one of each and we'll try to move through these quickly. Okay? The 72 come back. This is what I was saying at the beginning. There's a report. They come back, they're going to make the report. They're not going to show their slides. They're not even going to show pictures. They're just going to talk about all that God has done. And the great joy, okay, so this is the first thing. The great joy is what? What is their first and great joy there when they return to Jesus in verse 17? What does it say? Right, victory over Satan. Victory over Satan. And what's fascinating is when Jesus sent them out in verses 1 to 12, he never says, hey, by the way, you're going to have victory over Satan. This was kind of a surprise to them. What we learn here is that people who share and minister for Jesus find that he always gives more, not less. When they return and say, we had the demons subject to us, and note they say, in your name, right? It's in your name, Jesus, it's your power that did this over Satan, the adversary. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 18. He didn't go with them, remember. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, what did Jesus mean by this? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay? There's two options. I'm going to tell you which one I prefer. You can choose yourself. Either he's talking about something that happened in the past, and it's very much closely related to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, saying that he had witnessed the fall of Satan from heaven itself when Satan rebelled and God cast him out along with all of his demons who chose to rebel at that time. What Jesus is saying is, yeah, it, I, I get it. It, sure, it makes sense that you would have victory over the demons because Satan has already been broken. He's already been cast out of heaven. Maybe that's what he meant. Hey, yeah, 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 I saw, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I was there, I witnessed that. Could he mean that? Or could he mean something that is future, or kind of present and future, really, where he's getting a glimpse 
of Satan's demise due to the inbreaking of the kingdom of the gospel. Right? His defeat now is certain and catastrophic because he's been conquered by the blood of the Lamb. I think it's, I think it's more that. I think what he's saying is, and because of the tense that's used there, not to be too technical, I think what he's kind of saying is almost like he had this prophetic vision. Uh, I can't be sure, so I'm stepping over here. It could be either one of these. That when the, when the gospel went out, Satan's foes were, were, uh, were, were trampled on because the, the gospel overpowered it and Satan fell like a, sh- like a bolt of lightning. Revelation 12, 9 and 11. The 72 uh, didn't even know this was happening. They didn't even know what was going on. Jesus, Jesus tells them, yeah, I, I think this is what's happened. They went out and shared the gospel and the kingdom's just overpowering it, right? The, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, when, when it says that, I will build my church and the gates of hell were not, I, I always remember this sermon I heard years and years ago. Uh, it's, it's not like the gates of hell are an offensive weapon. Right? When it says, the, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Like, it's not like the gates are coming at us, fighting us. Right? It's like the church is attacking the gates of hell and just breaking through those gates and rescuing those who are in prison behind it. And that's what Christ is saying. When that gospel of the kingdom was going out, Satan, you know, and he's ultimately going to be triumphed over in the cross. So I think it's kind of that progressive thing that's happening and Satan is being overthrown. His blinding of unbelievers can be overcome by the kingdom. Here's what someone said. Whenever the kingdom of God is truly proclaimed, the work of God is accomplished in ways that the proclaimers aren't even aware of. Now, isn't that encouraging? Because you share the gospel and you never know what might come of that. When you share the kingdom, you never know what's going on behind the scenes in this spiritual battle. So just keep doing it. Jesus goes on and says, yeah, I saw that, and besides that, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy. You know, some people have taken that to mean we can handle snakes. You read about that, the guy in the church who handled a snake and died? I guess he didn't handle it well enough. These are, of course, simply symbols of Satan and his demons. That there is great joy because when we share the gospel, the enemy is powerless against us. But we hand out all these cards and no one responds. We don't, whenever the God, let me say it again. Whenever the kingdom of God is proclaimed, the work of God is accomplished in ways we don't even understand. Well, I've been teaching grace kids for four years and no kid has ever trusted Christ. Whenever the kingdom of God is proclaimed, the work of God is accomplished in ways that we aren't even aware of. Well, I've shared the gospel with my husband, my children, my friend, whoever it is. Just remember, whenever you proclaim the gospel, you don't know what's going on. You just be faithful to doing that. And you know what? There's great joy in that, isn't there? There's great joy. But it's a progressive joy. Okay, there's greater joy. What is the greater joy? Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. He doesn't mean don't take joy in that. He says, there's something better to take joy in. So we still have joy that we conquer the enemy through Christ. But the greater joy is that our names are written in heaven. Comparatively, that's a much greater joy. The biblical language that is always used is the, quote, Lamb's book of life, right? Exodus 32, 32, Moses says, do not blot me out of your book. Daniel 12, 1, deliver all those who are written in your book. Philippians 4, 3, Paul says, their names are written in the book of life. Revelation 13, 8, John says, they were written before the foundation in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Moses 
Daniel, we heard about him this morning, Paul, John, they all record in their different books that God has a book where he writes the names of those who belong to him in it. This came from ancient Near East kingdoms who frequently kept lists of their subject. Think of the Christmas story when Augustus asks all the people to come and take a census of the whole Roman world so every name can be written down and the king can know all who are part of his citizenship. What Jesus is saying is, when you share the gospel and the demons flee and Satan is overpowered, that's great. But you know what's greater? Your names are written in the book of life. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what one book said. The King of Heaven knows and remembers that we belong to Him and He keeps a record of those who are citizens of heaven and we have God's guarantee of eternal life. Now, if you weren't certain of that, what joy would you have? Apparently, from Scripture's teaching, the moment we repent of our sins and trust Christ to be our Savior, He writes our names in this book. And what it demonstrates is we are citizens of His kingdoms. We have a right to His possession, a right to His property. Revelation 20.15 says, if the name is not found in that book, I wish we could turn to all these verses so you could look at them. If your name is not found in that book, they will be thrown to the lake of fire. That's, think about the repercussions. I said, well, there's, you know, I can trust Christ later, or this isn't that big of a deal. I said, there's two responses to when the invitation goes out. Will you come to Christ? You either receive it or reject it. If you receive it, your name goes in this book, and you're forever secure in your relationship with God. If you, if you, if you reject it, your name doesn't go in this book. And you will be cast and thrown in the lake of fire just as certain as we're here. More real than this. Now we are not assured because our name is in a book. We are assured because God has promised to save those who put their faith and trust in Christ. This is a greater joy than the authority over demons. And it's because it is certainly longer lasting. It is a deep and lasting eternal joy. But there is a greatest joy. Let's go to that one. The great joy is that we have authority over demons. The greater joy is that our names are written in heaven. But what is the greatest joy? The greatest joy is the joy that Jesus himself has in being God. That's the ultimate and greatest joy. In fact, this verse right here, Luke 12, 21, where it says, Jesus rejoiced, this is the most intense word for joy that could be used in the Bible. Jesus, what brings Jesus joy? What brings God himself joy? What is the greatest sense of delight for God? The greatest joy that God has is in himself. God takes the greatest pleasure in himself. God doesn't take his greatest joy in having victory over Satan. God doesn't take his greatest joy in, in you and in me. He doesn't save us and then say, there are my pride. His greatest joy is being God, look at this verse. In the same hour, he rejoiced. It's a word that means to leap and to exalt and to, like, to jump around with joy. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, 
for such was your greatest gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know what Jesus is rejoicing here? What attribute of God is Jesus taking this great joy in? What do you see in that passage? What is he rejoicing in? Does anyone see it? What attribute of God is he mentioning here? You hide things, you reveal things, it's your gracious will. No one knows this unless you reveal it. What's, what is this? Yet, yeah, this, this is his sovereign control, his sovereign wisdom, his sovereign will. Look at what he does. He hides these things from the wise of the world. And he reveals them to children. And he does this because this is his gracious will. The word really means this is his good pleasure. This is what he wants to do. And Jesus is taking joy in this. Look at what it says. Jesus says, I rejoice that you hide these things. Does that bother you? Look at what it says. This is exactly what it says. He rejoiced. And I said, it's the greatest rejoicing. It's the best word for rejoicing in the Bible. He says, I thank you that you hid these things. That might not sit well with some of us, but what Jesus is saying here is I take great joy in our godness and in your sovereignty and that you choose to reveal and hide this truth. This is your goodwill. You are, you are Lord of heaven and earth. You are the master and the ruler. You hide it. Hide this information from the proud and self-confident. You reveal it to the humble and dependent. And many struggle with this. But let me tell you, it is God's gracious delight to bestow upon anybody the blessing of salvation. I started the message by who invites their mortal enemies to their party? God does. And he takes pleasure in revealing himself. He takes pleasure in hiding himself. And Jesus says, the greatest joy in the world is not the victory over Satan and it's not the pleasures that believers will have in us. The greatest joy is the pleasure that we have in ourselves. God is so far above us, and to think that God's greatest joy is that he saved me is idolatry. God must honor and exalt himself above all things, and to think that this sovereign God revealed this information to you and me, doesn't that blow you away? In fact, if you look at the very next verse, this will give you a kind of a lead into next week. Somebody got mad at this. Somebody got really mad at this. See it? Behold, the lawyer, 25, we'll come to this next week, stood up. I studied this already a little bit. It means he stood up in a, in a confrontational way. Because he's a lawyer, which means he's a teacher of the law, he's a scribe. He's, he's if, you, if you write in your Bible, you might circle lawyer and draw an arrow back to wise and understanding in verse number 21. That's who Jesus is talking about. This information is hidden from proud people like this who will not humble themselves and receive the gospel. And most people do reject the gospel because of pride. I bet you a lot of people in calculus class don't go to the teacher because of pride. I don't want my friends to know I'm dumb. I don't get this. I don't want my teacher to think I'm stupid. And some people don't come to Christ because they don't want... I don't want those people to think I don't get it or I'm not a Christian. Just come. Humbly admit your sins and enter into the joy that Christ offers. He gives a final blessing here. In other words, the man is mad because he's one of those wise and understanding that says, hey, how come I don't get eternal life? We'll talk about that. 
Verse 23, he finally turns to the disciples and says privately, this is, this is the punch for us, the good joy that we get. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. If you see and perceive and understand the gospel, you know what you are? You are blessed. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What a privilege to be called and invited and wooed by God into his family to have this power over and authority over demons as we share the gospel and, and the great joy of knowing our names are written in heaven, but the understanding that the greatest joy is the joy that God himself has. Blessed are those of us who have received the gospel. If you never have, boy, I tried to be urgent. Sometimes I feel like I fall short with that. But of course, the invitation is always open for you to come and receive Christ as your Savior. Let's pray together.